joining us live in the studio, it is none other than the Mayor of Bristol. We've only got 55 minutes to go. We've got loads of questions. We're, we're already having a heated debate as we've walked into the studio. I think we need to carry that debate on. Okay. Marvin wants to talk about racism, okay. and I think we should. Why not? Let's okay. talk about it. It's obviously a subject that's extremely close to your we heart. Grew up, we grew up experiencing it. You grew up experiencing it. it. So I'm, I'm just asking if you were going to ask about it, that's all. No, you obviously are very, very keen to talk about this subject, and, and that's fine, because I am too. No, it's okay. of course I am. I've okay. been brought up in St Paul since I was 11 years oh. old. I've lived and worked in this community yeah. and have seen such outrageous treatment of the black community yeah. that it is a subject that, of course, is extremely close to my heart. Mm. And I don't want to, you know, I, I, of course I want to address it. it Institutionalised racism is a problem that's an epidemic in this country. So how do we go about I mean, where do we start? Where do we start on a subject like this, Marvin? Well, we start, I mean, it's an incredibly complicated um, issue, obviously, uh, but it's, it's simple in, in many ways as well. But we start by setting out to have inclusive economic development and acknowledging um, that there's an issue. And understanding it in its context as well, and that uh, when we talk about it in Bristol, when we talk about the drivers of inequality, we're talking about where, where r issues of race and class hold hands are not the same, but are inseparable. And we talk about uh, a country that has among the lowest levels of social mobility in the uh, OECD, that, which is a network of industrialized countries. That means that your parental background, your parental background and wealth is the single most effective indicator of where you end up in life. Not your talent, not your hard work, but your parents' wealth, which is a huge tragedy. And there's a report that's just come out from the Social Mobility uh, Foundation that said that actually there's another kind of stinging um, uh, 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 fact they found out about the UK is that high ability people from poor backgrounds do worse in life than low ability people from wealthy backgrounds. So you can see how much your parental background determines your life chances. They get they they uh, so so these are among the challenges that are all tied up in uh, in the challenge around race and class in Bristol. Unfortunately, racism, as we mentioned at the beginning, is epidemic in so many institutions. You know, from from Bristol City Council, and you've done some amazing work. Bristol City Council and that's to an the easy police, and, you know. I, well, you, you you obviously you can mention some yourself. Uh, well, you're the journalist. I was leaning. For I'm you not to, actually. I'm just the oh DJ right. who's here on community okay. radio, just trying to do my bit for the okay. community. I'm not even a trained journalist, so okay. you can back well, that away as long as you like. I haven't been to university. I haven't got any qualifications. Okay. Half the time, I don't know what you're talking about. But I'm here to try and do my bit for the community. Okay. I've got a list of questions from listeners which I've been collecting for weeks to ask you. It's not about me, and it's not about you. It's about our listeners so why don't we go in and just talk about their sure, questions that's what you like to do do that it's good to have you here marvin it's good to have you back anyway third time you've been in the studio last time you were here it was 40 degrees in the studio it was very hot it was ridiculously hot wasn't yeah, it you got have you got the air con sorted now no not yet can you, you believe will, that you will kick up a fuss about that you I remember <laughs> the union <laughs> I wish. Talk to Paul and Roger. Yeah. Roger, Paul, you need to get this sorted out. <laughs> okay, <laughs> right. Um, we're just going to go straight into uh, questions from our listeners, if that's okay, because um, that's what we're here to do today. Gwyneth Rees um, wants to know if there's any plans about congestion in the city uh, and any radical ideas on making Bristol plastic free. Congestion. Well, we we've uh, we've we've set up a group called. Is is what it says on the tin? The congestion task group. <laughs> Um, I think one of our challenges is that we need to get genuine expertise around the table, and that means not just talking to council officers. The congestion task group that we've had set up is about tackling congestion uh, with an evidence base, um, and that has university people involved, uh, council officers, 
um, transport um, experts as well. And, and that's where we are generating these, these ideas. So for example, um, we are looking at the moment, we've run a pre-feasibility study, as technical as that sounds, but it means taking an early look at whether we can build an underground system for the city. Oh wow, that would we be amazing. We know we need a chapter change in the way that we provide mass public transit in, in the city. Um, so it, it's like London, it would, some of it would be underground, some of it overground. Actually, the first um, review came back positive in that it is possible. We, on Monday at the combined authority meeting, we got another couple of hundred thousand pounds to do the further study now to, 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 to look at the very specific business case of doing that. So that's not an immediate deliverable, but what it says is that we have the scale of ambition to give us the chapter change in transport we need. Um, we, uh, yeah, so, you know, things like that, uh, you know, are our foot as well. We're, we're, we're introducing a no idle roadworks policy to make sure that people dig up our roads are working with a sense of urgency. As a driver myself, it's a real frustration when you, uh, when you pass a roadworks and there's no one working on it. We need to get on top of that. Eastern Way Absolutely. was blocked off, uh, I don't know how long, a little while ago. So, uh, yeah, there's all sorts of um, activity going on um, at the moment. As well as, I would say, um, looking at our digital connectivity so that it's not just about people moving to opportunities, it's about opportunities moving to people because we have to look at the movement uh, both ways. So if people can access services and employment from nearer to their home, that obviously then we then we reduce the need to move around the city and, and the blockages on our roads. I get that. And kind of linked to that question, and which was a very popular question um, from Katrina Rose. After a horrendous journey through Bristol rush hour a traffic last week, I want to ask Marvin about the levels of traffic in Bristol. It's kind of linked with air pollution, I think, is what she's trying to get at. Yeah, and, and that's, again, that's all tied up yeah. with our congestion task group. Yeah. How do we give people uh, viable alternatives to using the car? Um, and obviously we're going to have the metro bus completed soon we're determined to make that work um, we've got a bus network and what i would say in terms of link with air pollution as well one of one of the recent successes we've had is that we're going to have 110 biomethane buses um, in the city with the infrastructure as well so just to clarify biomethane means it's not diesel it's clean yeah. energy and, yeah and brilliant so and we'll have the infrastructure on lawrence which actually is the game changer i'm told yeah that when you've got the fueling station put in then you can up up the scale so we got we got good money for that those buses are being introduced um so there'll be you know the the, the, the air quality much higher and in fact just this morning when we talk about air quality um, I was talking to um, one of our, our lead officers about the aim to have 100% of our buses on, uh, on what might loosely call clean energy. And actually what, we'd also, what we're also exploring is could we support the whole taxi trade in the city to move over to, to clean energy taxis so they're not diesel. But what we must respect is yeah. that many of the taxi drivers are small businesses. We can't just turn up and say, would you go out and spend 45 grand on a new well, car? Of course, yeah. we, we would have to find the, the financial support to help the transition. But uh, that's something that we're exploring right now. It's a shame, isn't it, where, where I know so many people would like to move to electric cars, but the cost is just not feasible. So, yeah, it's a real yeah. shame. OK, um, William Quick has a question here for you. Um, it's quite long, so bear with me. I'll, I'll, um, I'll bear with you. <laughs> Marvin, bear with William. It, well, I hope so. Oh. Uh, Marvin, in your July annual statement to full council, you contrasted your politics to those who protest against you by saying, the worldview I bring to this challenge is grounded in the Bristol, in, in Bristol, my family I grew up in, not one I read about or discussed in a university seminar. If this is the case, was it not a waste of time for you to do a master's in political theory and governance? And given that such a course would seem to be very relevant for the work of a mayor, is it not slightly counterproductive for you to ignore everything you read and discuss in university seminars? I told you it was long-winded. Did you get it? 
Did you get the question? Well, yeah, I do. I mean, basically, he's saying that why, 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 why were you dissing your education? I think is the, the no, length of it. I didn't. I no, didn't, I don't quite. Uh, so let's try and work out what yeah. the question is actually about. Shall we work back um, from the start? So what would I say? I I would say that my worldview is grounded in my background. I can't. As I look at the world, I cannot escape looking at the world, and I, neither would I want to looking at it as a black man, looking at it as a mixed race man. Looking at it as a man with a white mother growing up with a brown baby in a in a city in which race was a hot topic, growing up in a city that had the racial tensions of the seventies going into the riots of the eighties, my worldview is grounded in that that the impressions that made of me. You know, we say that you know people's people's life chances in many ways are determined in the first five years of their life. So of clearly uh, it, it, it's grounded. Um, in fact, my, my master's in political theory and government was in black American politics. So it was an absolute continuation of, yeah. of me understanding the role of race, power and class in the world anyway. So there's no, there's no kind of conflict there. Again, if he, I guess he's Googled me. If he Googled a little bit more, he might find out the subject matter. Might find my dissertation too, probably might help him. But um, I think what I was contrasting was as something I think has come to characterize uh, some aspects of activism in the city at the moment is that people who have lived quite comfortable lives and quite privileged lives are trying to co-opt the story of the poor. And everyone now talks as though they're on the margins of society. Everyone wants to be alienated. Everyone wants to hold power to account because they have no power. And, and I have people talk about holding power to account who I consider to have considerable power. They come from wealthy parents. Right. They don't know what it is to be optionless in life. Yeah. Even I had a conversation with someone the other day who was saying he was poor and he's got rich parents and he can call them up. I said, well, then you're not poor. Not poor, of course not. You know, and that, that easy kind of, that easy assumption yeah. that, uh, that because someone goes to university and reads about Latin American liberation or, or, or reads some, you know, you know, some socialist tracts, somehow gives them a pass to begin talking as though they are members of the oppressed and they have an authentic experience from which they can speak from is a challenge. And I think how I, how I, where, where I was challenging with that as well is that there's an odd dynamic when I, as a kid who grew up in the circumstances I grew up, um, still with seven brothers and sisters out across the city with a mum on a substandard pension, still lives on Stableton Road, is somehow held up of people who have grown up with all the privileges of, of their race and their class in this country uh, and then hold me accountable for the oppressive neoliberal economic system that they claim to be fighting against, when actually the pensions their parents get probably still pay them out from that neoliberal system. So I, I struggle with that contradiction and that lack of self-awareness. And, and, it, and I, um, I suppose my point is that reading some books and going to a couple of seminars and getting some knowledge does not give you a pass to ignore the fact that someone like myself, someone like Asha Craig, someone like Hibak Jama are in positions of political office against the odds. And actually being in political positions of political office do not in themselves make us powerful people. Because if we weren't here, we'd still just be black people in the country. All right. And, and that lack of self-awareness is something I find very troubling among some, some, some aspects of what is passing as political activism in Bristol. Do you miss being on the radio? I love being on the radio. It's I've got cool, un unfinished <laughs> business with broadcasting. Obviously, I used to be a, a broadcast journalist, as you know. And you, you also used to broadcast here at Ujima. I did. Yeah. I used to have a show with uh, Mr. Ian Quaife. Right. I used to call it Back of the Envelope. 
And that's because we used to put it together on the back of an envelope on Saturday. (laughs) (laughs) Phone him up on Saturday night, say, what are we doing tomorrow? That makes sense now why he was, um, there was, Ian Queff put some questions on Facebook to ask you about how you managed to keep so fit. I didn't realise he knew you. (laughs) (laughs) So that now makes sense. I decided not to ask you that question. Sunday mornings, I used to get in early, set it all up, and he just used to turn up as a showboater and uh, ride the wave of all my technical ability on the uh, I know that one only too well. That's why I'm sat here on my own now. Okay. (laughs) to be on BCFM as well to fair to balance it out I love BCFM BCFM are great a big hello to Pat Hart and everybody absolutely yeah Yeah. no they're great they're great it's our sister station you know community stations community media I have some questions about community media later on as well so we'll we'll do that in a minute Hmm. so um, Neil from Easton says ask Marvin who holds real power in the city this is what he wants to know is it just the council Oh, no, of course. No, no, not by any stretch. In fact, I love that question because I am desperate for people to ask that question. Um, Operation Black Vote a number of years ago ran a session in Birmingham called Who Runs Birmingham? Mm. So there's stuff that's on the face of the tin. You think, you know, uh, we the council has a big spend. You know, it's a billion pound a year. But we do not have command and control over the NHS. You know, they're accountable to London. It's a massive presence in the city about who gets services, what services are commissioned, but also how they manage their estates, who they employ, how they contract and so forth. The police is under Sue Matt Stevens. Our two universities are huge. Tens of thousands of students in the city. 6,000 students alone at University of Bristol. Impact on housing. And you've got the unintended consequences of what we do as well as direct delivery, but the impact we have. Obviously, we have a huge private sector in the city that shape people's lives. In fact, I would suggest that most people don't really come into contact with the city council. What they come into contact is with bin collection and road management. But beyond that, their lives are they're pretty independent in the council. Um, and then you would talk about the way power actually works. So we started off talking about social mobility. Well, that's not necessarily anything to do with particular institutions. That's about social standing, whether you talk about race, class, gender, uh, disability, the way uh, sexuality, or the way all of those things position people's ability to influence and shape uh, the world around them. So it's a real mixed picture, and the the political office is only one of those. If I can tell a very immediate story about mayors, one that really struck me. Again, let me go back to that first masters that uh, apparently contradicted my uh, birth years. But um, my first masters Black American politics, and uh, I always remember the story of the first wave of African American mayors. Now there had been. African-American politicians, but specifically some of the mayors in the 70s. And the fight was to get the vote. The fight was the Civil Rights Act. And then you got your first um, African-American politicians. And that was believed to be the path to liberation. And it wasn't. One, because there were all sorts of other powers shaping African-Americans standing within the country. But also what mayors found was they got elected on the promise of tackling inequality. And then the big industrialists in the town would turn up and say, congratulations on getting elected. But if you go ahead and implement all these workers' rights legislation, I'm going to take my factory to another city. So your option is stay with what it is mm. or mass unemployment. So there's, you know, when you get into another league of power, you don't get a blank piece of paper to do what you want. You just bump into lots of other powerful people who are pursuing their own agendas. So power is a complicated thing um, uh, 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 in the city. But the, the opportunity I have in many ways is there is a mandate by being directly elected by the city and the real mayoral power is convene and ask. If you can share a compelling vision, if you can get people around the table, you can ask them to do something. It's not command and control power, it's convene and ask power. 
Yeah. No. Okay. That's a very interesting answer. Thank you. Um, well, I kind of I want to. <laughs> I kind of want to spend a little moment for us going to about maybe celebrating some of the achievements that you have made, mm. if that's okay. I have noticed you getting a battering in the press from certain other media radio stations. I happened to listen to an interview of you yesterday, and I thought you slam dunked it. High five. Um, no, really. I mean, <laughs> what was this? going on about a mayor fest when actually it's you're bringing of mayors. thank you and bristol in the past has been maybe denigrated for a lack of um getting involved in certain things um I, I wondered if maybe you would sort of highlight what you were saying in the interview yesterday about how you're saying that bristol has had a reputation for not delivering and maybe how we could change that that's well, coming from me i'm afraid of being yeah, a bit I selfish mean, i would address this there i mean i thought it was saying, yeah. if we were hosting the g20 you wouldn't call it a national leader fest would you I mean, you'd say we're hosting the G20. We're bringing, <laughs> I mean, it, it, to me, it's self-evident. And also the charge, which is really disingenuous, is that we're paying for it. What we're doing is we're underwriting it to give it a guarantee so we can get the projects across the line and go out and secure the dates, book the hotels, and then secure the mayors and then win the sponsorship. Just to somebody who's listening who maybe doesn't know what we're talking about. Oh, yeah. So I'm, I've been made treasurer of the Global Parliament of Mayors, which is, which is incredible. When I think about me being a shaved-headed kid from Eastern, suddenly I'm number three in the Global Parliament of Mayors. Um, so this is a network of mayors all around the world on every continent. The chair is Patricia De Lille, the mayor of Cape Town. The vice chair is Peter Kurz, the mayor of Mannheim in Germany. Um, and this is bringing cities together to tackle uh, issues such as climate change and migration. The, the best way of exemplifying how important that is is look at the United States. Trump withdraws from Paris. U.S. mayors say, don't worry, we're going to deliver it in our cities anyway. De Blasio in New York, mayor of Dallas, mayor of Philadelphia. Um, Trump tries to take action to, to, to tackle, uh, to, to, to grow after migrants. Mayors say, well, I'm not going to enforce it. I'm going to protect migrants in my city. So Bill de Blasio in New York. So what, what we're saying is that we need cities to have more power. We're bringing that network to the city. So we'll have 80 to 100 mayors from all around the world in Bristol for two and a half days. But it's not just a talking shop. What we're talking about also is opportunities to connect our businesses and our economy to those networks, as well as take good action on migration and climate change, which are two issues of critical importance um, to Bristol's future. So that's what that's what we're doing. I thought it was the story was just handled, uh, you know, appallingly. It's not a joke. It's serious politics that we're trying to get in the city. But as a city, we we have struggled with a reputation for delivery. I, I think that's one that we have inside Bristol. We don't have a major, you know, where's our transport solution? Where's our train station? Where the houses we need? But it's also a reputation we have nationally as well with government that I would say is actually changing, uh, which is which is critical importance. Well, I look forward to it coming to Bristol. We've well, got you maybe have to come down and get some interviews with some of these mayors. There'll be some incredible people. Well, that's what I'm thinking. 80 mayors from across the world. That's going to be quite an achievement for Bristol in itself to get them all here. I so mean, I think the other special thing about that is when we think about our young people in the city, you will have black mayors, Asian mayors, mm. women mayors. You know, this this thing about who leads, we'll be able to showcase that. Think about the kids that, that are disillusioned, that don't see people in this UK political system, that don't see people that look like them, and then suddenly they will be on the doorstep. Absolutely. So we, we can make this, and we, the, the coming year we're going to make this a very special. We've got to do the uh, latest headline news. I'd like to come back, ask some more questions. Um, you know, in particular, I think housing is probably something we would like to address because I know they've made some vast improvements in that area yeah. as well. So we're just going over uh, to the BBC for the latest headline news. We'll BBC. be back shortly. <laughs> yes. Ujima News, brought to you by BBC Radio Bristol. 
You're listening to The Word here on Ujima and that was a track called Cypress Hill, Insane in the Brain. We've just taken a bit of a break for the news and uh, we have Marvin Rees, the Mayor of Bristol, live with us in the studio. And we have been collecting your listeners, Ujima Radio's listeners' questions to put to the Mayor over the last few weeks. We've had so many questions. Just got a text from Neil Maggs as well, actually. Oh, really? What's he got to say for himself? He's he, the, he won Sports Show of the Year, didn't uh, he? He's an excellent. He's one of the best broadcasters in the city. He's a good, good man. He good said, man. Cypress Hill, nice. A smiley face. <laughs> <laughs> and a smiley face looks just like Neil Maggs. <laughs> Thanks, Neil. Good to see that you're listening. He is. Absolutely love it. Okay, so we keep on with some of these questions before we run out of time. Let's see, where have I got to? Um, Oh, yes, a very popular question for you here, Marvin. So many people ask this question. Jill Sargent from Easton is one of them. Uh, What are you doing to prevent the closure of libraries in Bristol? Well, we're doing our best to come up with a package that, uh, that, that keeps... It keeps the buildings open and making sure we have a library uh, service, uh, but it fits within a broader context in which our, the, you know, the amount of money we're getting from government is not keeping up with the increase in demand. All I've asked when I ran this debate around libraries, which is essential, and we have, you know, we will be putting that into the public for consultation. Uh, our, our proposal around libraries, which is, which I think is a, is a, is a good one in the face of the challenges that we face, is that none of this takes place in an abstract. You know, if what I've said to people, if we want to prioritise one issue. We need to say what we're prepared to deprioritize. I mean, you shared, my mum sounds like my mum grew up in the same circumstances as you. You have a finite budget and you've got to choose what you're going to have and what you're not going to have. And unfortunately, that's where we are as local government. When we can get a change in national government that sees local government as an investment, not as a cost, you know, then, then we'll have a change in circumstance. So we are doing financial acrobatics at the moment. We're also uh, talking to community-based organizations that are wanting to take over the buildings and have multiple uh, uses from them as well with libraries and other, other services to keep those alive, alive as community hubs. It's also worth saying as well, there's, I, I, I was at a Labour Party meeting last night and a lot of people were focusing on, on, you know, on cuts, but I, I said too, look at what we've managed to do. We've we've retained the council tax reduction scheme in Bristol. Uh, we have kept all 22 of our children's centres open. One of the single most effective interventions in tackling long-term poverty and health inequalities is the start children getting life. That is an, that is an incredible achievement because they were really under threat. It was a commitment we made and one we've we've lived up to. And that comes from the same part of revenue uh, revenue money. So actually, it, I know a lot of these questions Mind if I can put a challenge out, or about what's not happening, and you know, there's not much about what is happening. I mean, we're in. We've just got two million pounds put through to master master plan Temple Meads train station. If we get the the money to go ahead with Temple Meads train station, that's going to be a you know two hundred two hundred fifty million pound development. What we've already started to do was talk about how we can line up local people with the skills to get those jobs. How we can li- we can organise local businesses to contract on those. Aren't, aren't we one side. of the only train stations in the country, not or one of the ci- only cities without not a modern train yeah, station? Yeah, yeah, it's crazy, isn't we've, it? We've we've got a bid into government now to you know that if we get again the money should come through. We'll have two thousand houses going up on. This was on my Hengrove. next question: is to look at the positive sides of what you've achieved. Yeah. And um, what's coming in the in the in the way of of housing? So we're talking about services, but as I shared last night, the the city council's role is not just to provide services; it is to provide development. It is to be a source of development, development of the economy, and that, and that means getting the economy going in such a strong way that people are getting jobs and decent jobs, you know, so that they can they can go home with a wage, pay the bills, feed 
enjoy life. Mm. Hence, we talk about living wage. You know, get the good, get the good things of life as well. So, our story in the city council is not just about services, as essential as those are. They're also about avenues out of poverty, and the avenues out of poverty are good quality jobs, and that's what we're trying to trying to trying to deliver. Yeah, great. Okay. Um, is there news on the airport as well? The arena. The airport. No. Uh, well, we are look our undergrounds. If we get go ahead with the underground, the first route would be to connect the city centre to the airport. Okay. Um, and we my bad. Sorry, I thought there no, was no. something. I thought there was some good news on the airport side, but there we go. Oh, then my, you may know more than me. I've got a question here. We spoke of BCFM actually. Ivan Jackson uh, from BCFM. He wanted to ask a question. Um, why did the mayor? They say it's a lot of attacking, isn't it? Okay, here we go. Why did the mayor fail to mention the state of play with the city arena, which just is why I'm asking the arena this. Just yeah, now. during his recent uh, state at the city address, and what is the current state of play? We now have a situation whereby Cardiff may have two arenas before we even have one. We didn't fail to mention it. We decided not to. <laughs> There's, if we mentioned every item of which there was no updates, it would have been a really boring speech, right? Um, what we what we've been doing is we've had a, a company come in to look at the arena because the first one came back in with the most expensive arena in the UK, which we were not going to deliver. I mean, that's that's not value for money for the city. So we went to the second place company. They took it on. They were doing the piece of work to look at how much would it cost them to deliver the arena against the, the, the plans that were on the table. Right. Um, and we have a value for money survey going through to make sure that what we spend taxpayers' money on in terms of arena is actually value for money. Do you think a 12,000 capacity venue is is what Bristol needs? Or do you think we, we need, need like a 50,000 stadium out at Filton or somewhere like that? Oh, no, no. We need, we need an arena about that size because that's, so? that's yeah. manageable. So if you're talking about darts, oh, okay. boxing, music, uh, venues, you know, you don't want someone as big and vacuous and, yeah, yeah. you know, so <laughs> no one ever goes to. that would be interesting, right? Just people in the front row in a little circle, even if you've got 10,000. We have got to. the city ground anyway, haven't yeah. we? Which yep. has all well, been done up nice, so. And Bristol City have done incredible work with their yeah. own conference centre and the stadium down there and Bristol Rovers want uh, a new stadium as well. So, you know, we, you know, we need, we need world-class sports venues, but we do need an arena and we are committed to delivering it. One of the challenges I would say about being in local government is that we are a democratically accountable organization dealing in commercial matters. And that means that we, we hold the need to be open and transparent with the need to be commercially sensitive. And that, that's always a, a tightrope we, we have to walk. And, and that's also around arena right now as well. If you know, at the moment, we've got like 37% of children uh, living in poverty. Five. Okay, 35% of children living in poverty. I'd hate to admit, but my son's probably one of those. Um, What can we do to come together, stop attacking each other, right? What can we actually do to try and help you to... uh, to improve our situation, get out of austerity? Austerity isn't working. How can we make things better as a whole? Well, in terms of national policy, people need to vote the right way at the next general election. That's just the bottom line. We... You know, national government have a lot more flexibility over the way it spends its money because they can expand and contract it. Uh, local government, you know, essentially, you know, uh, we are the most centralised country in Europe, and you know, much of the spend is directed from London, not from the from the, not from exactly. the local level, and that's yeah. an ongoing challenge that we are fighting. In fact, you'd seen if you'd seen an article just earlier this week, the the regional mayors, um, Tim Bowles, Conservative, you know, Andy Burnham. Uh, Labour, um, Andy Street in the Midlands, Steve Rotherham, who's Labour up around the uh, Liverpool area. Um, they've all made that case to government this very week that that we want the money to be local. So we've got control over it and we can decide what we're doing rather than 
rather than it being kind of um, let out on occasion uh, by Westminster, which is not a satisfactory way of running the, the country. But tackling poverty is, is obviously multifaceted. I mean, like I said, we've committed to um, ending food hunger in the city. If you're aware of this, we've got a big citywide campaign going on now, which is not just a let's give out food, but let's look at the sources, whether that be financial literacy, yeah. you know. We launched just two days ago a campaign to end fuel poverty in the city. 25,000 households in the city living in fuel poverty. And, and, and often fuel poverty and food poverty go hand in hand. Yeah. It's do I heat or do I eat? Right, so we've got initiative to tackle both of those areas. We've got a drive. Helen Godwin, my you know, he's an amazing cabinet member, and then Claire Hiscott, another amazing cabinet member, both working around children, young people, and education, are recruiting people to go and read with children in schools to get their their literacy levels up. That is one of the most effective ways of transforming a young person's life chances and their, yeah. their life trajectory. Yeah. My escape from poverty came through education yeah you know? but this is why libraries are so important and why I'm people are so easy. but th there is another question you know how do we provide the services library i mean i'll be frank we had a chat last night i didn't go to a library growing up and if you went to working class would you see long lines of working class kids outside the library you know we've got to look at many many ways this is why i think children's centers are so essential parenting skills nutritional mm. advice but for myself know, a library has been essential for me lately because i couldn't right. afford a laptop so i do my work at a library but yes i yeah. get where you're coming from but libraries it's the, venues, the onset of, of of the internet has made uh, information accessible to everybody which means education has been become worldwide which is but they need the hardware then they need the laptops absolutely. and the phones and so forth to attack we've got to take a break we've got one more break and then we've got the last segment of the show and then i have some questions uh, from Mujima to ask you about community radio. So we'll be back shortly. Okay, lovely track, but we're going to cut it short. That's the sound of Dukes, and I love the snow. Tammy Payne, we love you, Tammy Payne. But we've got Marvin Reese, the mayor of Bristol, live here on Ujima Radio for just 10 more minutes. Uh, now, we've got a few more questions to ask, Marvin. Um, we've got some questions here. Actually, they are from Ujima Radio listeners. It came from our Ujima Radio website. Uh, how do you see Bristol City Council working with grassroots organisations? Well, Bristol City Council cannot deliver alone. So there has to be uh, a par partnership is a very overused word in Bristol to the point at which it's become uh, meaningless. But actually, I was looking at the corporate strategy, which is going to be made uh, the council's business plan, as it were. And one of the things I said in there that we have to be an enabling organisation, a development organisation, and that means investing in and enabling grassroots organisations. But let's not shy away from it. That comes against a very challenging financial uh, background. So there are, you know, there are challenges, but what we've tried to do is protect the amount of money um, and protect the financial investment that we put into our community-based organisations. But I'd say the relationship shouldn't just be one that's monetary. It's also about supporting organisations to identify multiple funding streams as well. Um, to, to move to that positions of uh, sustainability. That's good development. I've, I, I mean, I used to work in a tier fund international development agency and that's what we want to do. How do, how do we get to a position where you are empowered and that means you've got power over your own money? Absolutely. Uh, how do you see the future of community media um, and what's the role of community, me community media in Bristol's developing landscape? Well, in, in part, that's down to community media yeah. and what it sees its role as, how powerful it feels it becomes and what it feels it's able to talk about and not talk about, as we've been discussing. Thank you. Um, so, you know, that... The authentic authenticity of community media is up to us to decide, isn't it? Uh, as, as me, as a representative of community media. Well, you'd hope so. Yeah. But obviously we know it's not. Yeah. Because there are other broadcasting voices out there who are, want to have an influence over what broadcasters, uh, what community media say. But what I would say is that um, 
I mean, I, I think right, when I worked in the health service, we launched the Healthy Living Show on Ujima so on Sunday after myself and Mohammed Al Sharif. We, we see that uh, community media was working, reaching out to communities in ways that many mainstream broadcasters could not or would not. It was also incredible, a pathway back to employment for volunteers of all levels, on air, off air, technical ability. Um, and, and these are all things that contribute to the common good, but also result in good uh, mental well-being volunteering, connecting with people, having a purpose, having a reason to get up. So the value of community media is, is much more than broadcasting. It's the whole product. It's the empowerment that goes with it. So I see it as being, having a massive feature and love to work together to make sure how we secure it. Because certainly the mainstream uh, outlets are not equipped enough to cope with the kind of stories that community media can unearth. Yeah, I agree. In what ways can community media ensure it plays a role in holding power to account? Well, you tell me. You've been talking about that. <laughs> I, I'm asking you the questions today, young man. <laughs> All right. Well, okay. <laughs> um, well, it needs to be authentic, and it needs. Yeah, it to is. It, yeah, absolutely. And that's what where where community radio can come in over yeah, um, the I, mainstream media. Yeah, and it and yeah. what we must be clear on is it shouldn't specialize in holding some power to account and not other powers to account. Exactly. So, uh, and that's that's a conversation that I think community media is going to need to have in the next couple of days. Uh, quite urgently, I think, actually. Yeah. Otherwise, it will, will, will struggle for credibility. But, yeah, I mean, it, that's part of its role. But let me just say something about the word holding power to account. I was with Kofi Clue the other day. If you look him up, he's, I worked with Kofi when I was in Washington. He's a kind of pan-Africanist activist, you know, real, real incredible man. And he, and he shared with me, actually, that there's a problem with the word accountability because it... The, if there's an interpretation, there's an impression that comes from, I'm going to hold you accountable. What that means is I'm going to sit back, watch what you do, and I'm going to point out when you fail. Armchair critics, yeah. yeah <laughs> the, the, you know, we need something that's, a, that's different to that nowadays because it's a, it needs more activity. No one can deliver alone. We've talked about this within the black community. We had a couple of meetings recently. And what Kofi said was, how can to, we had a room of you know, black people. And Kofi was saying, how can you hold Marvin to account when you haven't helped him put him in power? Right? So we have to get involved in a collective act of empowering ourselves and our communities, you know, and we are collectively accountable for what doesn't happen and what happens. Because remember, where's the power in Bristol? It is not in a city council alone. So if things are going wrong, it's not just down to the city council. Now, there's a disproportionate amount of attention paid to Bristol City Council. Now, emotionally, that may be very gratifying to criticise councillors and go on about the council. But politically, it's off target. Right. You shout at the institution, it's easy to shout at, but you're not actually getting at it. I saw that in the list of questions you sent to me, one of them was about the health service. Well, I don't have command and control power over the health service. You can shout at me about it, but that doesn't help. I've got questions about prisons. I don't run the prisons. You can shout at me about it, but it's not going to help. So it's, it's the right tools for the right, for the right subject matter, and it's about making sure that our energies are focused in the right way at the right time. That's, that's meaningful activism. That's meaningful political engagement. At a time when we are suffering with austerity and people are just really lost at the moment with all the Brexit negotiations, I know, you again, this isn't something you have power over, but do you have any words of wisdom or advice about how we go forward now with the Brexit? Yeah, so we, we are taking action on Brexit. And it's, you know, I've shared a number of times that the Brexit secretary has not reached out to the 10 biggest cities outside London to talk to us about what we need from Brexit, which is horrifying. So how can you be informed going into those debates or those negotiations? And what it 
suggests to me is that what we will get is a Brexit for Westminster, yeah, not exactly. a Brexit for the UK. Yeah. And interestingly, um, I did think, I think it was Liam Fox I saw being interviewed on uh, Peston a few weeks ago. And he said, I've walked up and down the halls of Whitehall getting, uh, getting our position on Brexit. And that's the problem. It needs to walk around Bristol, Liverpool, Manchester, Leeds, Sheffield, Cardiff, Glasgow, all the major cities and find out what his position on the Brexit negotiations need to be. We've got a big aerospace industry here. We need access. He needs to know what we need. We've got a big media sector in Bristol. He needs to know what that sector needs to be uh, to be uh, to be sustainable going into the future. So I don't think Brexit's handled very well. I think human nature would say you can't spend, you know, uh, three years and then an intense campaign slagging people off and expect to get a nice civilized sit down at the table. People don't work like that. I think it's also self-evident that um, they're going to want to make an example of the UK. It may cost them, but the cost of other countries leaving the EU would be greater, right? Than the, than the price they pay from getting a you know a, a bad deal with on the UK's. Exit. Do you think that's why they're kind of trying to make it sure we get a bad deal so that no one else follows suit? Self-evident to me that they would want to make an example yeah, of us, yeah? exactly. Which is where I think cities can be the solution. Yeah. So you can do whatever you want with Boris Johnson and David Davis. Deal with us. Bristol voted to remain. Deal yeah. with us. How can we secure Bristol-based businesses access to the European market or, or do trade deals with other European cities? And we're going to be exploring that with the core, uh, core cities. I'm not saying we've got it all worked out yet, but we're looking at all we can do to make sure that Bristol is it, it does not go down with... Which, which I, I, I mean, the government at the moment, they must know it's all going badly, but they insist on going down this road. It's like, but then again, you've got it being led by people who, when things go wrong, can buy themselves out of the consequences. They'll send their kids off to private schools and they'll live in, you know, the nice parts of, of London. They won't be raw people like me and you who yeah. are, you know, in the communities dealing with, dealing with the, the financial hits that uh, we're, we're going to end up with. Do you think your upbringing is giving you a unique um, understanding of how to handle and manage the city? Well, it's not unique. It's refer- I only ask because it's re- no, no. That's it isn't unique, but maybe perhaps in the in the in the in the halls of power, it's pretty rare, shall we say? Yeah, it would be rare within the halls of power. Yeah. But then we've got new people in there now. I mean, look at Asha Craig, my deputy mayor, first Rasta. I wanted to bring uh, this deputy up. Deputy mayor in, Love in Asha. Europe, and that's very that's a very <laughs> powerful. Craig Cheney, my deputy mayor, uh, was one of thirteen children. Grew up poor, if he doesn't mind me saying. <laughs> You know, my, my head of office, Kevin Slocum's white working class housing estate, you know, Lockley's housing estate. There are new perspectives. Helen Godwin from working class background as well, now in the cabinet. There are new perspectives at the top table of, uh, of political leadership. Now, that doesn't mean that we flick a switch and we get different outcomes. But what it does mean is that there are new perspectives at the top table, bringing a new interpretation with a whole different set of priorities. Um, and that's important. I think, and actually, I would even say that in our cabinet, you know, there's been a lot of criticism of some other some other mayors who have had all male cabinets our cabinet is 10 we've got seven women we didn't choose people because they're women i didn't put asher in there because she's black but the filter we bring to it we say who's the best person for the job and we don't filter people out because of their gender or their class or their their ethnicity and and that all that stuff matters it's something that probably hasn't been acknowledged enough actually about that changing nature of of political leadership um, uh, in the city that I think you know we can it's actually something we've discussed a lot on the show because we have really noticed the amount of black people and women that have become come into power in in Bristol and I think it is an achievement that should be celebrated and I think there are a lot of achievements that you've made in your short time that we should celebrate and I for one am really pleased and grateful that you're on there and I'm really really chuffed that you came in today thank you very much
very much. And I congratulate you on your show. And I do congratulate you, Gmail. I mean, this is this has been an epic project. I was actually on the board when it very first started, myself and Kevin Philemon and a couple of others. And then I went off to the US and come back and it's gone from strength to strength. We need stations like this and we need community people honing their skills and getting that stories on perspectives that mainly the mainstream uh, outlets cannot cannot get in touch with. So I'd love you. it if one day we could get our own news team. That would be my ambition here that I'd would love be it great if the, i'd love it if the talent that's at ujima was actually given a proper uh, opportunity to uh to to pick up on on some of our mainstream outlets as well